This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. I am delighted today to be joined by Rabbi Susan Silverman. From New Hampshire originally, Rabbi Silverman is the founder of Kamalcha, a Jewish response to refugees, a board member of Women of the Wall, and the founding director of Second Nurture, Every Child Deserves a Family and a Community, which is a group that has remarkable results in helping foster children find permanent homes in Los Angeles. And Rabbi Silverman is speaking to me from her home in Jerusalem, where she has lived for many years. Rabbi Silverman, welcome to The Rabbi's Husband. I'm so happy to be here. You know, it reminds me where my husband and I lived in an Orthodox neighborhood, like early in my rabbinate. In Jerusalem? And no, actually, sorry, in uh, Maryland. And one of our neighbors told us that the joke was people would walk by our house and say, here's where the rabbi lives with her husband. <laughs> uh, yeah, so in, in your neighborhood in Jerusalem, is your husband uh, the only rabbi's husband? No, our neighbors also. There are a few actually in our neighborhood. So uh, your chosen passage is right at the beginning, Genesis 1, 1 through 8. Please tell us what happens in Genesis 1, 1 through 8, and why it's significant to you. Well, I'm really interested in, because I'm, I spent a lot of my life thinking about foster care and adoption, I really love this idea of this Midrash on Bereshit, which says that, that it's not read as Bereshit in the beginning, but Bet Reshit, there are two beginnings. Let's go to the Hebrew. How do you, how do we get that from the Hebrew? Because I've I've heard that as well. But where in the Hebrew do we see that? Because when you just read it in a translation, it says in the beginning. I have the article in the beginning of God's creating the heavens and the earth. But how do we see two beginnings? Right. So reshit, like from rosh, had like beginning, like rosh hashanah, beginning of the year. Reshit is beginning, and bereshit is usually read as be in beginning. But this reading pulls them apart, the bet and the reshit, and looks at the bet as two, because in Hebrew, the letters represent numbers as well. And Aleph, bet, gimel, bet is two. So they say it's actually not reshit, one word, it's bet, reshit. There are two beginnings. So it's not in the beginning, it is, there are two beginnings. Yeah. Wow. So this passage, which may be the most familiar passage to everybody, because everyone knows in the beginning, we might all have it wrong. It might not be in the beginning. It might be there were two beginnings. Right. Or I wouldn't even say wrong. I would just say, you know. Otherwise. Exactly. I totally agree. Yeah. I mean, one of the beautiful things about studying Torah is that there is so often, as in always, multiple interpretations of the same passage, both of which are true, or many of which are true. And this might be an example. So one way to read this is, how, how do you read the whole passage? Uh, two beginnings, then how do you get the heavens and the earth? Well, what the rabbis do with this is that they don't really continue with that. They just talk about the two beginnings and what that means. And what they say is the first beginning is potential. So God creates sound and we form prayers or we form the blasts of the shofar so that God's creation is potential and that we are the vessels that give that shape. 
And so you can see how in foster care and adoption that a child has one sort of physical beginning, but also has another beginning, which is how they are shaped in the world. Well, and I think this notion of two beginnings is so important to what it means to be a Jew. I mean, Eli Wiesel said uh, when God created Adam, he gave him a secret. It was not how to begin, but how to begin again. Oh, I've never heard that. And then I think it was either he or someone else who followed with Bereshit is an acronym for two firsts, which is exactly your interpretation of it. The great gift in the Torah is the ability to begin again. And actually in my book on the Haggadah, I talk about how there's a beginning again in the Haggadah. First, it says we were slaves. Then it says we were idolaters. We begin the story again because a Jewish story has to begin again. That's right. I mean, how many New Year's do we have? <laughs> that it's also in the book on the Haggadah. How many, because I read Pesach as the authentic Jewish New Year. You know, it's it's the head of months. Rosh Hashanah is not in the Torah. The day of loud blasts is what it's called. I mean, it's probably the day of loud blasts that Sukkot's coming. Yeah, I mean, it could be. I mean, it's also whether, it's also the question of universalism versus particularism, right? So while we could say Pesach is like the birth of the Jewish people, right? We come through Yam Suf, we come through the Sea of Reeds, right? That's like this birth of our people. Whereas the creation of the world is a universal creation. Where do we identify our beginning? What are the New Year's on the Jewish calendar? We have Pesach, Rosh Hashanah. What, and also, um, like Tu B'Shvat is a New Year in a sense. New Year of trees. On the secular calendar, we have multiple New Year's. We have, of course, January 1st. We have our birthday. We have July 4th the national new year. We have various fiscal new years. Yeah, that's right. That's actually great. I've never thought about it that way. I think it's that the opportunity that a new year presents is too profound to happen only once a year. Right. And that we have so many tracks in which we need to begin again, that no one is going to sort of like reset us or reorient us uh, for everything. I love that. I never thought about that. No, but this is such a fascinating interpretation. That So Eli Wiesel, I don't know if he was referring to this exact interpretation, but the idea certainly is the same, is that the very first thing we learn about the world from the Torah is that there are multiple beginnings, which must mean it's the most important thing. Right, there are multiple beginnings, and sometimes it's a punishment, and sometimes it's an opportunity or both, right? Yeah, and it could always be understood as an opportunity because whenever one gets in a rut or in a valley, just to remember the first words in the Torah are, you can begin again. I mean, it's the fundamental message from God, right? I think another very interesting thing in the beginning of Genesis is that God being God could have created the world by proverbially snapping his fingers or just thinking about something, or, but he doesn't. He creates the world with words. And God said multiple times. Right, which demands relationship, right? That's right. Because if you say something in a forest and no one hears it, what actually happened, but it's exactly, it's when you say something, you, there has to be a hearer for it to be a meaningful experience. Like existence, it means relationship. Yeah, and God said, let there be light. This is one three, of course. God said, let there be light, and there was light. One four, God saw the light was good, and God separated between the light and the darkness. I think one of the interesting things here is that God creates the light and then says it was good, thus showing that genuine humility is not denying that you, what you do is good. That's false humility. God says, I did a good job. And if God can, can praise himself and accept the praise, then we're all created in his image. So we all should too. So it's, it's, it's false humility to deny the gifts that God has given you or the, the work that we do that's good. No, it's you, you do something good, just follow God. God creates light and says it was good. It's also, I think, 
it's, as you said, like it's disingenuous to say something that was good that one creates isn't good because what that does is it forces the person you're in relationship with into a position as well, right? So you want to have like true communication, not like this, oh, this thing I did was terrible. And then the other person has an obligation to respond in a certain way. Yeah, exactly. But I, I think it's so interesting that, that, that you point out, I had not thought of this, that by the virtue of it beginning with, and God said, he's basically telegraphing that he's going to want relationships with people, that, that he's, he's the God of relationships. Because I think one of the mistakes that people of faith make with prayer is we just lapse into prayer as kind of God is the great ATM machine in the sky. You know, you just go to him when you want something and you ask for something, you know, and, and it could be something meaningful. It could be health, but that's not a relationship. It's not a relationship when you only ask the person, when, when you only relate to the person when you want something from them. I mean, our children, they might want stuff from us and it's great. We can give it to them, but that's not the full relationship. Yeah. I mean, I know like this idea that like, you know, discipline with kids, which we're all, I think as parents, we're all always grappling with like the balance between like chesed and dean, you know, like how much room do we give them and just acceptance and love and how much structure and when does structure become too like militaristic and when does, you know, the open heartedness become just this big ocean that they can't navigate, you know? I remember somebody saying to me, like, you know, you can really force your kids to do pretty much anything, but don't expect to create a relationship. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. And uh, I think it was Rabbi Hillel who in the first century, he said a strict person is forbidden to teach. Right. Because you can't create a relationship. You can't create a relationship and you, you can't open a mind and open to heart. But on the other hand, you need that order, which is why, you know, it's very interesting in Deuteronomy. I believe it's in the last passage in Deuteronomy, the last passage in the Bible. God refers or Moses refers to the Torah as a fiery law. Deuteronomy 33, 2. And with his, he presented the fiery Torah, the fiery law to him. So, well, is the, the law fiery? The law, you wouldn't think fire bursts out of structures. Fire is the opposite of order. Fire destroys order. But the law embodies order. And I think what Moses is saying here is, you got it. It's fiery law. I love that. It's like up against itself. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Is that in order for the fire to rage productively, it needs to do so within a construct of order, which is why I think the word Seder is so interesting and so meaningful because Seder, of course, means order. But this is how we celebrate our festival of freedom on a, on a night called order, because we can't practice our freedom productively or effectively or meaningfully without some order. But as you said, how much order, how much freedom, that's an eternal challenge. Right. Well, and I think also another piece of that question that you're making me think about is, is the idea of who is, in a sense, establishing the order? What does the partnership look like? So if we're talking about like the Seder and coming out of Egypt, like we didn't have a partnership with Pharaoh, right? We were Pharaoh's slaves and we were for the benefit of Pharaoh. Whereas our relationship with God is mutuality, right? There's like meets vote are our own growth as well as honoring God. Like there's it's not a zero sum game. It's like when we do well, everybody does well, right? There's this, this sense of, um, of room. That's right. And what you're pointing out is God is announcing that's the way the world's going to be as early as he possibly can in, in Genesis uh, one, three. Hopping forward a little bit in Genesis, maybe it's like seven or eight. I don't have it in front of me that God separates the seas from the seas and the lower seas God calls you know, the sea and the upper seas, God calls the sky. And 
there's this amazing midrash. This is another reason that I wanted to sort of, that I ended the passage there because I wanted to get to this separation of sea and sky. There's this amazing midrash that just like makes me cry where the rabbis say when God separated the waters from the waters and made the upper waters the sky and the lower waters the sea, the lower waters wept and called out, woe to us that we are separated from our creator. And it's just such a powerful passage to me. I think, you know, particularly because I do work in foster care and adoption, that there are many children who are separated from the ones who brought them into the world, right? But then God also sort of saying in that moment, in the, the Midrash acknowledging that there is no growth without loss. There's no growth without brokenness. That brokenness is inherent in creation itself. Absolutely. And I think uh, if we go to the last line in the Torah, literally the last line in uh, Deuteronomy, let me just get it here. And it says, uh, yeah, and by all this strong hand and awesome power that Moses performed before the eyes of all Israel. So I believe it's Rashi who asked the question, what could he be talking about? What did Moses perform before the eyes of all Israel? And there's only one other time in the Torah when Moses did anything before the eyes of all Israel, and that's when he smashed the tablets. So in other words, what God is telling us here at the very end of the Torah is the best thing you ever did is smash the tablets, showing that what I want is I want your broken selves. This is who I want. And uh, this is how the Torah ends. And I think it's a Talmudic Agadah. God, I should know this, but I don't remember, which teaches that in the Ark of the Covenant that we carried with us from Sinai forward, um, we carried the broken and the whole tablet side by side. Oh, I think that's Torah. I mean, I, I well, in the tabernacle, and I think it's in Leviticus, in the tabernacle, it refers to the tablets as plural. Yeah, there is. That's right. That's where that is the pasuk that the Agada launches from. Yeah, interesting because it, it, it's in the plural. Because what it's it's well, it's only one tablet in the ark. No, 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 it's plural. So God wants in the ark the whole tablets and the broken tablets. How do foster children relate to this passage very practically? In the sense that, you know, thanks to your unbelievable work, you're helping them live the Bible and giving them an opportunity to begin again. How hard is it to forsake the initial beginning when it can no longer be a part of your life? Well, I think that agotic text is really telling because what's really, really, really important for kids is that it's not like a, oh, we're going to wipe your past, your slate clean, and we're just going to start a new life. Not at all. Like the broken tablets have to be carried with the, with the whole tablets and they've got both in them already right? We're not like creating a wholeness, you know, but, but the fact is that they come from something that was broken or that in the process of this, they had to experience some brokenness. And I think it's funny because the Agata in itself is a model for it because telling our story is what is so powerful. So when a child, a young person is able to be in relationship with someone who in partnership helps them tell their own story, that's how they can master their lives. And I think that's what we do as Jews, right? We're in relationship with God. We're in our relationship with our Chavrusa. And through that kind of relationship, we are telling the story of our people and we're seeing our place inside of it. And I think for kids who, some kids who are in multiple foster homes, some kids who, you know, eventually adopted, um, have a lot of brokenness. Like the, every time a child is uprooted, 
from certainly from their bio family and then from foster families, it's a trauma. And it's that trauma of I've been, you know, separated again from the big forces that have control over me. Right. And so once you can be with a kid or a really good foster parent along the way will help the child to name their story because that's immensely powerful. What do you mean name their story? Because, you know, what I was thinking is that it's probably very difficult, albeit impossible and even insensitive and not to mention ridiculous to go to a foster child and say, well, the last line in the Bible is uh, about the broken tablets and, and, you know, your brokenness is actually sacred. and That's what God wants. You'd never say that to a, someone in deep pain. It was insensitive and ridiculous. But how do you channel that idea, which is the governing idea, into a productive way that people can begin again and move forward? So one example is, I mean, there are so many levels to this. I'm going to start with something very like specific and practical, which is you essentially make a Haggadah, but it's not called a Haggadah. It's called a life book. And you can work on life books with kids and they could be super creative and with drawings, depending on the age of the kid or writings or cutouts from magazines that just tells their story or what's known of their story. So that as kind of what's the word like, disconnected their pieces might be in their history, at least they can create a God, a telling of what their life was like and is like, and see how it can shift in their hopefully new, hopefully final home. Right. So that's one way. Another thing is just mirroring kids. You know how, like we say to our kids all the time, like, or if they're like, Hey, look what I made, right? Like, look, it's good. Keto. Right. And you say, Oh, that is good. What were you? Tell me about that drawing. Right. So we're always reflecting to our kids, their experience and helping them to describe their own life process. Right. Kids who are in foster care often never had that. Right. And certainly kids in orphanages worldwide do not get anyone who's looking in their eyes and just reflecting them to themselves. And that's how we become, right? We become because someone's reflecting. A grown-up, someone who matters, someone who's like got our back, they're reflecting us because we matter. And oftentimes kids don't have anybody who they matter to in that way, who is also able to do that kind of reflection. That is just naturally how kids tell their own stories. You know, your kids, I'm sure said like, oh, remember when I was little and I blah, 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 because the story mattered in the family, right? So start to make the stories matter and worth telling and worth responding to and worth asking questions about. Is it helpful or harmful if in the process of beginning again, a child retells, talk about the Haggadah, you know, retells and maybe relives a deeply traumatic and painful story? So I think it's really important for kids to have the space to do that. And it's a real balance. You know, I look back on, you know, we've got five kids and and two of them are adopted. And I feel like with our younger son, I didn't do enough of that reflection with him. When I feel like things are sort of like hitting the fan now with him because of that. There are like lots of reasons for it or whatever. I'm not like, you know, slapping myself over it. I'm just like reflecting about it. And it was always resistant to talking. And so it's hard to know what's like how to not force it, but how to really make room for it. And it's a very hard balance, but you definitely want to not just make room for it, but give pathways and the skills for being able to do that because stuff like that doesn't go away because you don't talk about it, right? It just takes different forms. It doesn't go away, but it's interesting because Victor Frankl, and I don't want, and he was such a genius, brilliant, and complicated man, so I don't want to reduce it, but he opposed Freud and Freud was all about let's 
investigate our past and try to understand what it means. And Viktor Frankl was just said, Kadima, right? Let's, let's go forward. Let's try to, he didn't say that. What he said was we have to seek out meaning. He said, seek out meaning, seek out purpose, focus on the meaning, focus on the purpose. Don't try to plunge the depths of your past to figure out why you're like this or that. You're never going to figure out and it's not productive. What is productive is to find something to live for. And we actually see that all throughout the Bible when it says things like, uh, you shall live and not die. Well, why live and not die? It seems like if you're living, you're not dying. So why say the second? Because you actually can live. And it's because living is not not dying. Man shall not live by bread alone. You know, so that was the Viktor Frankl philosophy was let's not focus on the past. Let's identify a source of meaning, focus on that and build from that. Um, I think what that points to maybe is like the difference between some important like self-understanding and having a language to describe right? Because when you have a language, then you have some control. If you don't have language, you don't have control. So between that and what it is to be stuck. And so, you know, maybe this, this idea, this dichotomy isn't, this doesn't have to be a dichotomy, but there does have to be an awareness and a nuance because we don't want to be stuck. I think a point you previously made is so, so profound and it really cuts to the core of Jewish education, which is, you know, King Solomon said, educated child, according to his way, because there's no one right way to educate a child. Each child's different. So a certain philosophy or psychology might work for one child and another child might need something very different. And uh, it's what makes parenting and educating complicated. Oof, tell me about it. <laughs> I like, I look back and I think, oh, I want to do it all over again because I'm so much smarter about it now. <laughs> right now, but it's, it's, it's always complicated, but you know, the good thing is kids are resilient. So, well, first, thank you for such a fascinating conversation on so many levels, starting with this dual interpretation of this so familiar part of the the Bible in the beginning and how it really means at least as well two beginnings, which I think is such a beautiful and true interpretation, true to what the rest of the Bible teaches and going on to so many different other subjects. Now, the concluding question of the rabbi's husband always goes from one text, which is the sacred text of the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malroux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And uh, he tells a story in the book he said, um, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. He said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then became a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. <laughs> so in all of your years as a rabbi, a Jewish leader, and now one who is so deeply engaged in the sacred process of helping children from troubled backgrounds to begin again. What are two things that you've learned about humankind? Ultimately, everybody wants and needs relationship, that there's no self without the other. So the self does not exist without the other and one other or many others? At least one other. There has to be, there has to be at least one I-thou relationship in everybody's life. You have to be seen as your whole human self, at least by somebody, in order to, to thrive, to become, to have a sense of mattering. I would say the other thing is that, and this is really hard for me because I can be really judgmental, even though I seem very nice, is that we have to be able to see ourselves and every other person, not in an entirety, but if we can't find the thing that's like maybe sinful or maybe wonderful or whatever about another person, we have to be able to find that spot within ourselves. And if we can't, then it's not that it doesn't exist. It's that 
we don't have mastery over. Give us an example of that. It's such an interesting idea. It's a midrash that was taught to me by Rabbi um, Dr. Sarah Lev. And the story is about this Rebbe who all day he, he meets with people, meets with people, meets with people. And one day this, the most horrible person in the village came in. And the rabbi spent hours and hours and hours with him. And at the end of it, the rabbi ran screaming into the woods. And his students were like, couldn't find him, ran home, finally found him. And he's sobbing, sobbing, sobbing. He's saying, Rebbe, what, what happened in there? Did you, did you see yourself in him? Were you able to do that? And it terrified you? And he said, no, I wasn't able to see myself in him. And the idea being that if you can't see that, even an ounce of that in yourself, then that just means you don't have mastery over it. And that's terrifying. That means you don't have mastery over yourself or you can't understand the other or both. I understand it as you can't have mastery over yourself. We are whole worlds within us, just like God is everything. Like I truly believe that God, you know, there's this midrash, God rules over humanity, but who rules over God? And the answer the rabbis give is the righteous rule over God. But I don't think that's true. I think we all rule over God. And that when we create love and expansiveness and justice in the world, that's reflected in God and then kind of magnified. And we're able to have, um, you know, like this kind of like cosmic snowball effect, right? But if we're creating bad things, then God's going to reflect that too. And I think God begs of us, you know, certainly with, you know, um, the 13 attributes, right? Where God just is essentially begging us to bring out God's rachamim, to bring out God's compassionate side. Like, please, God says, like, please, like, be loving and compassionate so that I can strengthen that in me too. Because if you bring out evil, that'll strengthen the evil in me. And I don't want that. Interesting. And, you know, it reminds me, you, of course, know the Hebrew. I don't. But panim is only in the plural, right? Yeah. So there's no Hebrew word for one face because it doesn't exist. So if something doesn't exist, we don't need a word for it. Nobody has one face. Nobody has one identity. We all have multiple faces, multiple identities. So we don't even need a word for one. It's just panim. Right. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much, uh, Rabbi Silverman, for such a fascinating conversation on so many subjects. And thank you for all the sacred work that you do. Thank you so much. You're amazing how you're just able to like make these conversations like deep and rich and move forward. Like, Oh, well, thank you. The Torah is the gift that keeps giving and uh, <laughs> never stops. So thank you. If you're enjoying this episode, I hope that you'll sign up for the Rabbi's Husband newsletter, which includes book giveaways from our podcast guests, my weekly column on Christian Broadcasting Network, inspiring updates from United Hatzalah and African Mission Healthcare, and a behind-the-scenes look at my upcoming book published by St. Martin's Essentials, The Telling, How Judaism's Essential Book Reveals the Meaning of Life. You can sign up at therabbishusband.com or feel free to email daniel at therabbishusband.com.